Recovery Elevator, episode 149. And I justified to myself for a long time, like, oh, yeah, I have a drinking problem. Everyone in their 20s has a drinking problem. We're all alcoholics in our 20s. Like, that's what we do in college, and that's what, I mean, we'll fix the problem later type situation. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, it has been 28,232.6 hours since my last drink. On today's podcast, we've got Mackenzie. She's 13 days sober. She's from Boise, Idaho, and she claims that she had an affair with alcohol while her husband was deployed. And a Merry Christmas, everybody. This podcast episode comes out on December 25th, 2017. I hope this Christmas, this sober Christmas, is a good one for everybody. And remember what Christmas is all about. Well, for me, I don't so much focus on the religious component of Christmas, but I focus on what it represents for my family, and that's spending quality time with loved ones. And sobriety has allowed me to be present, to be in the moment, and Christmases, Thanksgiving, all holidays spent with family are so much better without alcohol. And before we get to our topic today, which is facts about alcohol, let's hear from Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it was painful. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group 24 hours a day. There, you can get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For $14 a month, you can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend online meetups, attend in-person Cafe R meetups, and participate in book club. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get started. There's this program on my computer called Evernote. I absolutely love it and highly recommend it. It's like a virtual notebook. It's a great way to get organized with your notes. Anyways, I've had a note on there called Facts About Alcohol for a long time. While researching podcast episodes, while doing articles, etc., if I find a fun fact, I'll copy and paste it and put it in this note. Oftentimes, I forget to put the link in there as well, so a lot of these facts, you're going to have to take at face value. In fact, I bet some of these facts aren't really facts. So I apologize if I say something and you're like, wait a second, Paul, can you back that up with some data? Well, I can't. While I'm sure the majorities are true facts, I'm sure some of them slip through the cracks. All right, here we go. Alcohol and drug abusers are three times more dangerous than mentally ill people who are twice more dangerous than the general population. According to HBO's Risky Drinking documentary, less than 20% of people with alcohol abuse disorders get treatment. That's right, less than 20% of people who need treatment for alcohol abuse actually get treatment. I've said this many times on the podcast, I am one of the lucky ones to have gotten sober. And if you are listening, you're probably one of the lucky ones as well. All right, let's keep going. A recent study from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that excessive alcohol consumption costs the U.S. economy an estimated $250 billion in 2010, primarily in lost productivity, medical bills, and motor vehicle accidents. According to a recent USA Today article, an estimated 18% of American adults drink excessively. 
According to that same USA Today article, the drunkest state is North Dakota, and the drunkest city in North Dakota is Fargo. With 25.2% of adults reported to be binge drinkers, and with 38% of traffic fatalities involving alcohol. Here's an interesting one for you. Up to 40% of all hospital beds in the United States, except those being used by maternity and intensive care patients, are being used to treat health conditions that are related to alcohol consumption. Wow, that is high. Let's talk about AA for a second. Success rates for AA are extremely hard to calculate. Although AA has been criticized by some sources for having a low success rate, the rate isn't 5% like it's estimated by some to be. But Dr. Drew Pinsky figured the success rate is slightly higher, between 8% and 12%. The American Society of Addiction Medicine, ASAM, states about 10% of individuals who join a 12-step program recover. However, the New York Times suggests Alcoholics Anonymous has a much higher success rating of approximately 75%. Well, that seems a little high to me. Alcoholics Anonymous touts about a 50% success rate, stating that another 25% who relapse come back and only 25% don't remain sober. The organization suggests that those who don't get sober don't use AA effectively. According to an article in The Atlantic, the success rate for people in AA is about 1 in 15. In my unprofessional opinion, the 1 in 15 is probably the more accurate figure. What kind of sobriety is in AA? Well, a study conducted by AA in 2014 showed that 27% of more than 6,000 who participated in the study were sober for less than a year. In addition, 24% of the participants were sober 1 to 5 years, while 13% were sober 5 to 10 years. 14% of the participants were sober 10 to 20 years, and 22% were sober for 20 or more years. Here's some interesting information about the founders of AA. William Griffith Wilson, Bill W., and Robert Holbrook Smith, Dr. Bob, founded what would eventually be known as Alcoholics Anonymous. Wilson, a New York stockbroker, had recently overcome his ruinous alcoholism after speaking with a friend who'd sworn off drinking in exchange for religion and witnessing a great white light in his hospital room. He joined a Christian movement called the Oxford Group, which led to his meeting Smith in Akron, Ohio. Wilson, who knew from one of his doctors that alcoholism was at least in part a physical problem, spread the word to the struggling surgeon, spread the word to the struggling surgeon, who had his last drink on June 10, 1935, the founding date of AA. Dr. Bob died in 1950 and Bill W. in 1971. By 1939, AA had expanded to three groups that produced 100 sober members, and publicity of its success brought it a deluge of new people seeking help. By the end of 1940, there were 2,000 members. By 1950, that number had jumped to 100,000. The Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous is perennially a top 20 bestseller. The next set of facts would probably fall under the category of random, so here we go. It only takes six minutes for brain cells to react to alcohol. Did you know that alcohol kills someone every 10 seconds worldwide? About one-third of designated drivers have at least one drink while wearing that title. Hmm, yeah, I believe that. It turns out that alcohol doesn't make you forget anything. When you get blackout drunk, what happens is the brain temporarily loses the ability to create memories. Did you know that each Russian consumes 4.8 gallons of alcohol per year, doubling what experts say is dangerous? Beer was not considered an alcoholic beverage in Russia until 2013. Wow. Did you know that Amsterdam pays alcoholics in beer to clean streets? Five cans of beer for a day's work. Wow, 
Amsterdam is one practical city. Did you know that alcohol poisoning kills six Americans every day? In professional shooting, alcohol is considered to be a performance-enhancing drug because it relaxes you and slows your heart rate enough to give you an edge. The highest blood content ever recorded was 0.91%, more than twice the typical lethal limit and 11 times more than legally drunk. Did you know that 31% of rock stars' deaths are related to drugs and alcohol? One in five top 100 country songs will refer to alcohol. Yeah, I definitely believe that one. This one looks to be more like a myth, but lo and behold, it was on my fact note, so here we go. Alexander the Great once held a drinking contest among his soldiers, and when it was over, 42 soldiers had died. On the same fact sheet is, people with blue eyes have a higher alcohol tolerance. I have blue eyes, therefore this is true. The top 10% of American alcohol consumers ingest about 10 drinks per day. About 50% of Asians have trouble metabolizing alcohol due to a missing liver enzyme needed to process it. Coffee has been found to reverse liver damage caused by alcohol. Did you know that Jose Cuervo is the oldest family-run business in Mexico? I sure as hell didn't. 30% of American adults do not consume alcohol ever. Wow, that seems high. But then again, I was always disillusioned that people didn't drink as much as I did. So it's probably right. A century ago, men were three times more likely than women to have a problem with alcohol. Among the people born in 1990, the odds are about the same. The Aztecs had penalties for being drunk, which ranged from head shaving to the death penalty. Yikes. I would not have lasted long in that civilization. When Winston Churchill visited the U.S. in 1931, during the height of prohibition, he found a loophole. After being hit by a car, the doctor prescribed him six shots of alcohol at mealtimes. It is estimated that nearly 17 million Americans have a serious problem with alcohol, but only 3 million ever seek out any kind of help. On average, alcoholics' lives are 10 to 12 years shorter than those who drink moderately. 85,000 deaths each year in the United States can be attributed to alcohol-related causes. $35 billion, the amount excessive drinking adds annually to U.S. healthcare coverage. If someone is to spend $15 a day on alcohol, that's $5,500 a year. Three million, the amount of violent crimes occurred each year in the U.S. in which victims perceive the offender to have been drinking at the time of the offense. About two-thirds of these alcohol-involved crimes were characterized as simple assault. Approximately 53% of adults in the United States have reported that one or more of their close relatives has a drinking problem. One in six teenagers binge drink and only one in 100 parents believe his or her teen binge drink. Did you know that alcohol is the fifth leading risk factor for premature death and disability around the world? In 2009, liver cirrhosis was the 12th leading cause of death in the United States, with a total of 31,522 deaths. Alcohol-related liver disease was the primary cause of nearly one in three liver transplants in the United States. If I can summarize all those facts that I just read, it's that alcohol is shit. Again, this podcast is not a diatribe against alcohol itself, but it's hard not to arrive at that reasoning that alcohol is just shit. And I'm so glad I'm on this side of the equation. Okay, and now let's hear from Mackenzie. Mackenzie, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Paul? I'm great. Thanks for asking. Mackenzie, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? Today is day 13. Nice job. 
And a listener's Mackenzie emailed me on day six and she said the cravings are so strong. And so we'll get more into that later of how she got past those cravings. But nice job on getting 13 days in the books. But before we get any further, Mackenzie, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, and what do you like to do for fun? Well, I am from Boise, Idaho, and I have never really lived anywhere except Boise, Idaho. I'm 23 years old, and I work in the emergency department here at the hospital. I'm in school to become an RN, and I love crafting and doing furniture upcycles, and I like to do a lot of stuff that involves fitness and nutrition. Those are great foundations for recovery. And you, you are uh, you're newlywed, right? You said you got married in February? I did, yeah, nine months ago. Congratulations. That's great. Thank you. I'm sure you're going to be able to spend a lot more time in the marriage and being clear and transparent in the moment, I imagine. Yes, I think my husband's looking forward to that as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's back it up a little bit. Uh, when did you first realize, you know, you're 23 years old, you're, you're young, and I wish I was 23 and doing this podcast. It took me a while to, to finally read the writing that was on the wall, and it was on the wall in my early 20s as well. But you know, let's back it up a little bit. When did you first realize that perhaps you have a problem with alcohol? Well, you know, I had a buildup of constant sickness and hangovers on my days off, and I kind of started to realize that my hobbies not didn't really exist anymore, and it was starting to affect my marriage. We're newlyweds, and I was always at home sick on the weekends, and my husband wanted to go do things. And any time that I, I mean, I would suck it up and go do it, but I wasn't really present. I was just suffering with a hangover or still having effects from the alcohol, and it made those things that could have been enjoyable a lot less enjoyable for us. It was pretty miserable, actually. Yeah, and tell me about, you said, you like, the passion was, was taken away out of your hobbies, and, and, and tell me more about that. Well, I like to craft a lot, and that's something that I've always liked to do. I'm a very creative person, but I kind of started drinking while I was doing those things on my days off. It kind of became a ritual or a habit, I guess you could say. So I was drinking, like, bottles of wine as I was crafting, and then... My creativity, like I felt like it was enhancing it, but it really just made it worse. Ended up kind of injuring myself with a saw one time, you know, stuff like that. It just wasn't fun anymore. The outcomes weren't what they used to be, and my work wasn't as productive as it was in the previous years. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure at first it seemed kind of novel to be drinking and, and crafting, but like, so the outcome was a cut hand instead of like a finished project, I imagine. Yeah, I like to um, make stuff out of wood, too, so my husband didn't really like knowing that I was at home drinking and using power tools. <laughs> yeah, so you liked wine, and I, I liked wine, beer, tequila, pretty much anything. But, uh, yeah, tell us about your drinking habits. Well, I got into the habit of drinking every day when my husband deployed. And, I, and like, when was that? Were you 20? Uh, yeah, I was 20 that time, the first time he left. And he was gone for about eight months. And I like to say I had an affair with a bottle when my husband was gone because you hear about the military spouse type situations. And it wasn't like I had an affair, but I was just drinking so much to cope with the anxiety of being alone at home and trying to sleep in a house by myself and all kinds of other situations that I would just try and drink my way through. In reality, it was just fixing it for the night. And then the next day, it was right there facing me again. Mackenzie, you, you uh, must have the wisdom of a, of a thousand-year-old man here because you just you just said some key value bombs right there, the word cope. Using alcohol, trying to cope with your husband being so far away you know, with the anxiety and the loneliness. 
and you realize, you recognize, and again, this is a tremendous opportunity. You're 23 years old, that you you got a lot of life in front of you, and, and so do I. I mean, I'm I'm young too. I feel like I'm no, I'm not young, but I feel like I'm lucky that I nipped this in the butt in my 30s instead of my 40s and my 50s. But you realize that you you were just temporarily you know fixing a problem and leveraging the future for you know, completely. And and how do you how do you feel like things are different now with with the coping mechanisms? I feel like my coping mechanisms are improving slowly but surely. I mean, I'm just a couple weeks into this, but I'm actually like feeling the emotions. I've heard that a lot of people say that on your podcast, but I truly can relate to that. I mean, I cry all the time now and (laughs) I never used to cry about anything. And I'm actually like expressing my feelings to my husband, which was something that he couldn't figure out. He's like, you're a girl, you should be able to share your feelings when I really struggled with that. That was something that I thought was a moment of weakness, but really my weakness was that I was so consumed with drinking alcohol or being under the influence of alcohol that it took away from me sharing and opening up to my husband about anything. Now, Mackenzie, 13 days ago, did you have a rock bottom moment or tell us why, why you quit drinking? You know, it was, it's kind of hard to say like one specific thing happened. It was, like I said earlier, kind of a buildup of a million different times where I had caused um, my husband heartache or my family members heartache, but I was excruciatingly hungover 13 days ago, and that hangover was had lasted about two and a half days, and I was suffering from some withdrawal symptoms, and my husband looked at me, and he said, and he was very, he's a tough guy, and he looked at me with tears in his eyes, and he said, this is not normal, Mackenzie. This is not normal. This is not a hangover. This is not what normal people do. You're scaring me. I don't like seeing the woman I love in so much pain and struggling. And he's like, we, he's like, I'm by, I'm by your side, but we have to get through this. We have to find a solution to this. I don't know your husband, but he sounds like a pretty cool dude. And oh, he is. I'm very, very blessed. Yeah. And it sounds like he nailed it and he's, he's right there in your corner with you. And it's good that he's on the same page. And I imagine you're probably going to share this podcast with him, which I hope you do. Um, it's just, just more information and, and to build up your recovery team. That's great. And, and tell us about this Boise State game <laughs> and you know, the email that you that you sent me. I read that. I was like, oh, my gosh, that's that sounds painful. It was. It was something that I still feel guilty about. So my husband had tickets to a Boise State game, and I, I do enjoy football, but it was also like I enjoyed watching football at home from the comfort of my living room because I like to be able to drink at home and not worry about how I was going to get home or anything or making a fool out of myself. But he had tickets to this game. And I told myself that I wasn't going to complain about it because it was something my husband really wanted to do. And it was my day off and he had to work and I was supposed to be ready for the game when he got home from work and we were going to leave straight from here. And he got home and I had drank a liter and a half of wine at least. I know I at least put one of those big bottles down. I honestly can't remember how much after that. But I remember thinking, oh my goodness, this isn't good. And that's kind of the last thing I remember. And I, the next thing I knew, I woke up and I was home and my husband was next to me in bed. And I, I knew that whatever he was going to tell me happened wasn't going to be a good situation. And sure. so I woke him up, obviously, and said, oh, my gosh, did we go to the game? And he's like, yeah, we went to the game. You complained the whole time. You were drunk. I introduced you. To, it was to his brother's new girlfriend who I w- we were really excited to meet, and I was really drunk and made a fool out of myself in front of them. 
And he said that we left before halftime. And I completely took away from something that was supposed to be really fun for my husband. And I feel terrible about it. Yeah. And I remember the blackouts would be onset sooner and sooner. And I would be able to do more and more. Or, you know, they'd last longer in duration. And, you know, I'd wake up and there'd be hours long blocks, chunks of time where I'm like, oh, shit. You know, you look out the window, you see the car. But and you know that. You, you like he's like hey Mackenzie you, you know at halftime they called your name and you throw the football through the tires you want a new set of four tires like nothing cool like that happens during a blackout and oh, um, <laughs> yeah and like you, you, sure you don't love going to Boise State games but it's something you want to do for your husband and it just sounded yeah I read that email I was like oh my gosh this is this is terrible I, I really want to get this gal on the podcast but let's talk about your age for a second 23 i can't even imagine getting sober at age 23 because it's everywhere everybody drinks and especially in that time frame you're going to school to be an rn what is it like being 23 years old trying to get sober you know a lot of my friends drink a lot and that it just is normal and i got sucked into it when i was about 18 years old right when i had moved out of my parents house after high school I mean, my roommates at the time, that's all that we did. We drank every day. I mean, Monday through Friday, downtown Boise, it's kind of a smaller college town, but there's always a bar doing a special, any kind of special for a dollar beer. There's a different bar every night has dollar beers. And so we would be going out every night and it just kind of became a habit. And that's what everyone does. And I justified to myself for a long time, like, oh, yeah, I have a drinking problem. Everyone in their 20s has a drinking problem. We're all alcoholics in our 20s. Like, that's what we do in college, and that's what, I mean, we'll fix the problem later type situation. And my husband also pointed out to me, because he's, I mean, he's 27, so he's still in his late 20s, but he has kind of gotten past the party stage, and he pointed out to me, like, hey, like, that doesn't last forever. You know, it's not normal to be doing what you're doing when it affects everything in your life you're not just going out on the weekends and having a good time you're doing it on your own and it's not fun anymore and that's kind of what I've had to realize also it's hard because it's not very easy to tell my friends that are closer to my age oh hey I have a drinking problem I don't want to drink anymore because to them it's silly but I mean I can't speak for them but I can speak for myself and I know that my drinking habits were out of control Sure. So, so that's big right there, though. Did you have have you had some conversations with your close friends and said just that? I have had that conversation with two of my close friends. I've kind of it's been hard to talk about it, honestly, with very many of them at this point. I'm planning on it in the future. But the two that I'm closest with, I talked to and they're they're like, oh, well, like, can we drink around you still? Like kind of those types of questions. But for the most part, they were supportive. I think it was a shock. I think that they may think that it's more of me assuming I have a problem when I don't or think that I'm overreacting to the situation. But I think that with due time, I can just lead by example and they can see how my life will improve and they'll know that, I w- that it's something to take seriously. And a podcast episode that just came out a couple of weeks ago is the reverse intervention. And it doesn't matter where you're at in your journey, if you're sober, if you're trying to get sober, you, you got to have these these real conversations with your friends, with your family, pull them aside and say, hey, let's have coffee at 3 p.m. on Tuesday and schedule this time. And you almost like got to drop a bomb on them and just say, hey, this is about me right now. I need you on my team. And but you got to be ready 
for the response of your friends because alcoholism has given me one of the best friend and family filters that I could have ever asked for and it's a tremendous gift because you know you don't want to be hanging out with people that aren't your real friends that they're just your drinking friends and you feel like you're their their reactions when you told them about your goal to not drink was supportive I do feel like I guess one of them was extremely supportive it's my cousin and we're five weeks apart in age and we've been I mean best friends our whole lives and she was extremely, extremely supportive. And she was like, you know, I can see where you're coming from. I can see why it would be really hard for you to stop. Because she's watched me kind of go through all my hard stages in life and watch me with my self-destructive behavior, which I've had not just with alcohol. I've had it with eating disorders as well. And she was completely on my side. And then the other friend couldn't really relate as well just because I don't think that she understands what it's like to not be able to control her drinking the way that I can't control mine. And that's kind of tough for me because I want to just like, hey, like, please understand, you know, and beg and plead, but you can't. It's just, I said what I had to say and I'm going to continue leading by example. Sure. And it's like, I'm, I'm glad my brother, my mom and dad, they don't fully understand what's it like to, once you start drinking, to, to be, it's almost like nearly impossible to stop. I'm glad they don't understand that. But you know they are supportive, and I've I've developed I've been lucky that I, that most of my friends when I told them I found out they were true friends. But there's a couple that just within time the distance was created, and you know 13 days that's 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 a great building block of time. But we're pretty green with this, Mackenzie. And I want to talk to you about how you plan on getting day 14, 15, and and what what are you doing? So let's back up to day one, two, three, four, five. You know, how, how have you gotten this far? Okay, so the first days, one, two, three, four, five, were absolute, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, it was hell. It was very, very difficult. It was an emotional time. My body physically was aching. I was very, very confused and lost in my head. I knew what I had to do, but I didn't know how to do it. And I just had a hard time wrapping my head around the whole entire situation. But I kept telling myself the cliche, like one hour at a time, like I am not going to drink until 4 p.m. I'm not going to drink until 5 p.m. I'm not going to drink till tomorrow. It, that's how I had to take it the first five days. Absolutely. 100%. And once I pushed through, I mean, I can honestly say that yesterday was the first day where I physically didn't feel miserable. It was very, very difficult for the first few days, but I am so glad today, like waking up before this podcast, I was just like, I feel great. I mean, physically, I don't feel dehydrated anymore. I don't feel like my body's shaking as hard anymore. And that makes it worth it. I have struggled with self-care my entire life. It's something I've been, I mean, I just neglect it. It's very easy for me to just put it off or not do it at all. And so I've been working on finding new forms of self-care and learning to think nice things about myself and not shut myself down in my head and rather than doing that I try and build myself up and find things that make me feel good about myself. Mackenzie you're laying down some pretty good talking points right here and you said something that I absolutely love. I knew what I had to do but I didn't know how to do it and that's how a lot of us feel. That's how I felt I know for sure. Yeah I knew what I needed to do but I didn't know how to do it but the good news is as long as you don't drink you really don't need to know how to do this and there's so much research out there with, with podcasts, with books, there's 12 step programs, this and that. And it's one of those things where it, the way recovery is structured, and I hope you get into, um, you know, developing a community, the way recovery is structured, it's, it's, it's like, if I help others, if you help others, if people are so willing to help others 
who are in recovery or who are trying to get sober that it's just incredible. It doesn't, you don't have to know all the answers. I also liked what you said about self-care. Um, I, I don't think I've ever heard it even said on this podcast, but there's a lot of basics that with self-care that I've overlooked. And, you know, they say once, once you start drinking, you stop maturing and, you know, even in my three years of sobriety, I'm starting to focus more on going to bed at a decent bedtime. I remember in middle school and high school and elementary school, you know, my parents would make sure I'm in bed at, at uh, you know, 10 p.m. And I'm focusing on that stuff more, focusing on my self-care more at like three years in the sobriety, trying to get to bed around 10 p.m. And it's, it's you know, I, I'm 35. I can't work a full day the next day off four or five hours of sleep. It just doesn't happen. I need to focus more on my self-care. So I really love those points that you just, just pointed out. And so, Mackenzie, how, you know, how are we going to get day 14? What's your plan moving forward in sobriety? So my plan moving forward has been just to, I mean, self-care is a big one for me, and that's what I'm going to continue with. But I honestly, like, kind of what my day looks like right now, I mean, I, so I work two jobs also, but I I like, I like to wake up and I like to exercise. I used to be like big into fitness competitions. That's kind of how I got developed eating disorders and whatnot a while back. But I like to wake up and exercise and kind of let my body like sweat and feel like it's working towards something and make myself a healthy breakfast and walk my dog and enjoy a cup of coffee rather than chugging a cup of coffee out of misery and trying to sober up for the day. I like to move forward with my days in a positive way and start it off without without just rolling out of bed and dragging myself to work. I like to wake up and tell myself today's another sober day and here's how I'm going to start my day to make myself feel good physically, mentally, emotionally, all around. I love what you said about coffee. Because there were so many days where I was hungover, and you just don't enjoy it. You don't enjoy coffee. You're chugging it almost alcoholically to just just to get to wake up, and it's not enjoyable. But um, one thing I implemented in the first, I think like month five or six uh, sobriety is I listened to an audio book, a book called The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod, and it's a challenge where you wake up at 5 a.m. for 30 days. And it sucked for like two weeks. And then I started to enjoy it in the first two hours of my morning. And I, and I kept going with it for like a year. I was waking up at five. My alarm, my average time was like 517 is when I got out of bed. And um, I'm going to get back onto that in the new year. Go figure. But it just everything in the morning was so much more enjoyable, including that cup of coffee. And are you finding that other tasks for you are more enjoyable, like your crafts, like the passions and the hobbies are coming back? I do feel like they're coming back, and I actually did my first. I was honestly nervous about it. Like, I had a day off, and I was going to craft, and I normally go to the craft store. Then I go to get my box of wine or a bottle of wine, and I skipped that part. I just went to the craft store, got myself a cup of hot tea, came home, and I was – I don't know why I felt so nervous about it, but I did, and I loved it. I enjoyed it just as well as if I were drinking. I mean, it was enjoyable. I loved it. I felt happy. I was talking to my dog the whole time, and – I mean, it, it just felt good to accomplish that. And when my husband got home, I was like, guess what? I'm sober and look at what I made. And look at what, I <laughs> what did you make? I'm curious. <laughs> I made a wreath. <laughs> a wreath. Awesome. It was like a festive wreath or? Yeah, I made one for Christmas time. <laughs> okay. I guess I guess there aren't a lot of Easter wreaths. Yeah, most wreaths are, are for Christmas time, right? They are. Yeah, I'm fairly uneducated on, you know, the basis of a wreath, but you know, now that I think about it, yeah, wreath, you don't see too many wreaths around July 4th, so it's probably a Christmas time wreath, right? 
Yeah, but I would probably be the person to try and create one for July 4th. <laughs> sure. Why not? Why not? Just don't let lightning fireworks off near a dry wreath. Exactly. Yeah. And so what have you learned most about yourself in, the, in these last 13 days? That I'm actually, like, a good person. I guess that I have just beat myself up a lot, and I've struggled to kind of get along with my in-laws. It's kind of been a struggle since before we even got married. We just have very different personalities, and it made me question my own personality a lot and, like, what am I doing wrong, you know, my character. And, you know, I just realized, hey, like, not everyone's going to like me but I like me and I'm happy and I'm comfortable in my own skin and that's what matters. And that just feels really good to honestly be able to say that because before when I was feeling worried about it, I wouldn't think it through. I wouldn't work through it. I would just drink through it. Yeah. This, the self-loathing is a critical piece to address for anyone who wants to achieve long-term sobriety. But I love what you just said. Not everybody's going to like me, but guess what? I'm going to like me. <laughs> and that's, yeah. that's huge and, and yeah. good for you. Yeah, and I also wanted to mention, like, I got a DUI when I was 20, and I got that leaving a Boise State game, which is another reason why I'm not too fond of them. Mm-hmm. But I got that DUI, it was two and a half weeks before my 21st birthday. And my husband was deployed at the time, and we weren't married yet, but we were dating. And, you know, like, calling my mom from jail and having her like come get me and then having to FaceTime my husband who's overseas and tell him that I had just been arrested for a DUI was excruciating and I would beat myself up for it and it's something I like relive in my head every day but he's kind of helped me and getting sober the past couple weeks has really helped me to be like hey it happened but move on it's time to move forward and those things happened they sucked but quit reliving them in your head type thing and that's something that's kind of difficult for me I'm I don't know why it just is I have a hard time letting go of things that I've done wrong but I'm starting to but that's a great outlook to have on those things and I've made those calls from jail I've had a DUI and I should have multiple DUIs but I've made those calls I've had friends and family come pick me up in dire situations and it but I said the great outlook to have is is yeah, they happened. Let them go behind you, but never forget that pain because it's the ism, the incredible short memory, which is really dangerous when it comes to alcoholism. Is you know, the, fur, the further away those moments of pain become in my memory, is when my addiction, who I have named Gary, starts chirping loud and, and will say, well, It really wasn't that bad, was it, Paul? Like, you know, it, yeah, sure, he spent a night in jail, but, you know, the blankets were warm and they had hot food. It wasn't, it wasn't that bad, was it? And pretty soon that, that voice can become pretty convincing. But, yeah, just, just don't forget how painful it was. And only 13 days ago, it's not that far ago. And just, yeah, my advice would be don't forget about that. And, and Mackenzie, what are your thoughts on relapse? I'm honestly terrified of it because I feel like I'm so fresh to being sober that it, I mean, I have to remember that it's very, very possible. It, I mean, it will take a half a second of weakness, but I know that, I mean, I have my husband on my side and I know that I'm avoiding situations at this point in time where it's going to be tempting, but I'm going to be able to hopefully be able to say no when it happens. I mean, I'm telling myself yes, but I don't want to be overly confident and then go in there and fail either. I just do not want to relapse this, especially this early. I feel like it would be detrimental to my sobriety. And so, I mean, one hour at a time right now, one mm-hmm. hour at a time. Yeah, it sounds like it's a great outlook. 
And I want I need to ask this question to more interviewees. But with 13 days of sobriety, what's your proudest moment in your sobriety? My proudest moment in my sobriety, I mean, 13 days of sobriety. Let's see. What's my proudest moment? I feel like right now, like today, waking up and saying, I feel great. I haven't felt this great in years. It's been a long time since I've woken up and not felt miserable or guilty or had some sort of thought. And today I woke up feeling absolutely phenomenal about the plans I had for today and doing this podcast. It's just, it makes me proud of myself because I never, ever would have pictured myself being on an alcohol sobriety podcast. Yeah. And how cool is that? That your proudest moment is, is right now. <laughs> That's yeah. great. And it took you, it took you 12 days to get to day 13 where you, you woke up and feeling great. I see this all the time in cafe RE and, and forums and emails that like, they're like, I'm on day seven and I still feel like shit. Like what, what is happening? And you know, alcohol can just wreck us physically, mentally, and spiritually, but the physical component, it can take a while for our bodies to come back online, especially sleep and emotions and all that stuff. So yeah, it's congratulations for not stopping before the miracle happens. And I'm hopeful and I'm, I'm, I'm positive that you're going to keep moving forward. And Mackenzie, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I am ready. All righty. Number one, Mackenzie, what was your worst memory from drinking? Um, blacking out after my husband FaceTimed me from overseas and not remembering talking to him. And we've all heard of that aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating that you couldn't control your drinking? Probably be waking up after our wedding night and not remembering the last half of it. And what's your favorite resource in recovery? I mean, right now it's Cafe RE. I mean, that's all that I've really done and self-care. Have you thought about going to AA? I have thought about it. I drove to a meeting and didn't go in. <laughs> you and a lot of other people. You're not the first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I encourage you to, to check it out. You should go. You should okay. try it out. Yeah. Go in next time. Yeah. All right. And in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? To face it. Facing it is the only way to overcome it. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about getting sober or who are already doing it? Rip it off like a Band-Aid. It's terrifying. It hurts like hell, but just do it. Your life will flourish. It's been 13 days and my life has completely changed already. I knew what I had to do, but I didn't know how to do it. But you can start by just ripping off the Band-Aid. I love it. And before we depart, give listeners your own customizer. You might be an alcoholic gift line. You might be an alcoholic if you buy a plane ticket to Vegas instead of paying for a lawyer for your DUI. Nice. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that works. <laughs> Mackenzie, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today on the Recovery Elevator podcast. You have a great day on day 13. All right. Thank you so much, Paul. Come hang out on Saturday, January 20th from 7 to 9 p.m. in Dallas, Texas at the Marriott Residence Inn. I'm putting on a networking event, a Recovery Elevator social. It's going to be a lot of fun. You can go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash Dallas to get tickets. Okay, Recovery Elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. 